Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today, we have a special guest, uh, Dr. Alara Catena, Managing Director of Bodegas Catena Zapata, founder of the Catena Institute of Wine and owner of Luca Winery in Mendoza, Argentina. Laura, Dr. Laura Catena, welcome to the show. Thank you. How are you? Good. Now that I introduce you, I feel like I have to be so formal. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. You have an interesting background. Most of our audience is going is obviously going to know you from your wines, but as I as I'd mentioned, those first two letters, doc, you studied a you have a biology degree from Harvard and then you got your MD from Stanford, but you also have a your family has a legacy of making a really famous wines in Argentina. And I'm curious if you give us a little background about like, how did your journey go from the family, but then also back into wine for yourself? Like you're doing, you're kind of managing both things at once. It seems like you got a lot on your plate. Well, when I was a kid, I went to the winery all the time with my grandfather, my father. I, I grew up in the vineyards. But then when we went to the States, at the United States, when I was in high school, my father went on to discover the Judgment of Paris, the California Wine Revolution. And meanwhile, I headed to Harvard undergrad where I majored in biology, but I was one class short from minoring in French. So I did a lot of humanities and a lot of science. And then many people would have thought, okay, why doesn't she go into the wine business now with her father and become a winemaker? But I wanted to help people and I wanted nothing to do with money. Today, I really appreciate money because, you know, I can buy vineyards, I can pay people well. I, I think money is very important. But back then, I thought I want to do something that helps people. And I thought medicine, you know, I love people. I want to work with people. I love science. And that's why I decided to do medicine. And I went off to uh, study at Stanford. Then I did emergency medicine. And it was actually while I was working in emergency medicine that I did a, two trips to France with my dad because I spoke French. I went as a translator. I started really falling in love with wine and then realizing that my father was trying to put Argentine wine on the map, which really back then there was Chilean wine. It was really low end. Nobody even knew that we produced wine, even if Argentina back then was the fourth largest producer of wine in the world, but we were drinking all the wine at home. There was no qualitative Argentine wine industry in Argentina or for exports. And when I saw what my father was trying to do, then I, I went to, okay, I want to help people as a doctor, but I also want to help my father and my country. And that's how I've been living this double life of doctor, winery, viticultural research. But it really kind of happened one thing at a time. So how do you split your time? I mean, so because you're actively doing things, especially now with COVID as a medical professional. So how, how do you chop up your time on a, in a given week? Well, I did choose the only medical profession that was compatible with this. And that was not on purpose. I chose emergency medicine because somebody that needs to be moving around. My grandfather, my nonno, my Italian grandfather called me la lauchita, which means the little mouse because I could never sit still. And so when I walked into the emergency department and there was just like things happening all over the place and emergencies and you had to make diagnoses and you were moving from one patient to the next, I said, this is my world. And so I chose that. And actually, emergency medicine allows you to work shifts. I have a, a lot of colleagues who go climb Everest. Emergency medicine doctors are famous for having other jobs or other interests. And so my other interest was running the winery, which, you know, I started by doing research and helping out a little bit. And then for the last, I don't know, 15 years, I've been the managing director 
But it really started with these two passions. And then today, I'm a very part-time doctor. I'm mostly volunteering to vac- vaccinate people for COVID. But I'm hoping actually to be long-term volunteering as a doctor until I'm too old to do it. Just like the same as, as wine. I've already told my husband, there's not going to be retirement for me. The, nobody retires in the, in the Catena family. You basically, if all your dreams come true, you, you die after drinking a good glass of wine. So I am curious on the synergy between obviously studying biology and being a doctor and winemaking and in the wine industry. There's a lot more advanced in terms of understanding the science behind wine. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about, have you found that background to be helpful? And if so, in what ways? Yeah, so for sure, winemaking has a scientific side because it's fermentation and you have to understand chemistry. And that was actually very easy for me from the beginning. The big thing is developing your palate. And that's something that, that's more of the art side of wine. I call our winemaker our Picasso because he has such an incredible palate. And to be able to predict this taste right now, right after harvest, what is that going to become? And that was something that I had to work on. But I, I love wine. And I always say, you know, if you don't love drinking wine, you will not make great wine. You have to care so much about the little subtleties of flavor, like how tannic is this wine? How spicy is it? You know, when you're making a blend. And so I also really love art and I love food and I love wine. And so that was something that I had to learn. But in terms of how transferable the skills are, for one, when you're making wine and you're looking for what's the best part of this vineyard, planting vineyards, all all this has to do with developing a hypothesis and proving it. So, so actually, the scientific side really helped. The other thing that really helped was teamwork. So when you're in the emergency department, you work with a team, and you really need to trust and know the other people on the team. And uh, when I first went back to Argentina to work with my father, we were in a very hierarchical winery, you know, where there was like, you know, three boss people, and the boss person only talked to two people. That was very foreign to me because I was used to working in a mercy department where basically I have to be best friends with the front clerk because the front clerk has to make sure that if somebody's having pain, they identify that it's a heart attack and they get in right away. And this kind of teamwork is what I brought to the winery. And I think it's been a big part of our success is that everybody that works at Catena, you know, from the commercial people to the people paying the bills to the people cutting the weeds and doing the soil studies, everybody believes in this dream of ours of making Argentine wines that can stand with the best of the world. And so I was surprised at how transferable the skills were. That's really interesting. We'd love to focus a little on the Argentine Malbec in general. And obviously, Catena Zapata is a huge part of that and one of the top brands in the whole country. But you're also one of the foremost historians on Malbec itself. Could you give us some background on Malbec's history as a varietal and how it ended up being the national grape of Argentina? Yeah. And, you know, I'd love to say that I know all the secrets to the story. But as you said, I have spent a lot of time doing research about the history of Malbec. And when I was at Harvard, I remember people telling me, why are you taking so many French classes? They said, what a useless language, which actually French is a very useful language, not just for people who are interested in wine, but French is spoken in like 20 something countries around the world, a lot of countries in Africa as well. But thanks to this French, I was able to read all these texts, which do not exist in English, from 18th century, 19th century. And what I found out was that Malbec had this 
insanely interesting history. So it's known since the Roman times. So 2000 years ago, Cahors was the cradle of Malbec and it became very, very important in the Roman Empire. Then it's drunk by Eleanor of Aquitaine when she marries Henry II. So remember, Eleanor came from France and then for 300 years, most of France basically belongs to England. That's why there's so many connections between French wine, Bordeaux and England. And Cahors was one of her regions. So, you know, she brings Malbec to England and then it spreads all over the world. And then again, in the 19th century and 18th century, Malbec gets planted in Bordeaux to the point where it's even more widely planted than Cabernet Sauvignon. And this is both a French encyclopedia and in the Encyclopedia Britannica, which I had to find a tome of the 1980, no, 1887 Encyclopedia Britannica on eBay. I found it. And it says that there's more Malbec planted than Cabernet Sauvignon even. So this is an uber-famous variety. Then it comes to Argentina in the 1850s, and then phylloxera hits. And the problem with Malbec is that it's prone to coulure, which is when the yields go down when there's cold weather. And they happen to also have like a decade of really cold years. And so the French say, we love this Malbec. It's great to make the Cabernet smoother because, you know, Malbec has these smoother tannins. It's very rich, but smoother tannins than Cabernet has a lot of fruit. We love the Malbec, but you know what? It's too finickety and it ripens at around the same time as Cabernet. Whereas we have this Merlot that also has a smooth tannins that has a nice fruit, but ripens earlier. And for a viticulturist, for a farmer, you never want everything, everything to ripen at the same time. First of all, it's like the, the human power to harvest and do all the work in the vineyard. And then you like to have some of the grapes already in the winery in case you get a, bri- a big rain. So you've already at least harvested some grapes and they're in good condition. So basically Malbec gets replaced mostly by Merlot. But meanwhile, Malbec has been saved by being brought to Argentina where we don't have a big phylloxera problem and where we are kind of separated from the world for about 100 years plus. Because, you know, with all the economic problems and the catastrophes in Argentina, we don't bring in a lot of material. So here we have this pre-phylloxeric, genetically diverse Malbec thriving in Argentina, disappears in Europe. And then basically 100 years later, my father has this brilliant idea. What if we revive Malbec? And at this point, nobody in the world of think- is thinking about Malbec because it's an unimportant grape in Bordeaux. Cahors is on the decline. Like They have very few vineyards that are even producing anything. And Argentina has nice Cabernet and Chardonnay, which were, if you think about the 80s, those were the great varieties of the 80s. And, you know, the only standout was Shiraz from Australia that was doing well as a single variety. And then we've got this Malbec that is actually being pulled out. So if you think about Argentina, there were about 50,000 hectares in Argentina. Between the 60s and 70s, that goes down to about 14,000 hectares. So basically, Malbec is being pulled out in Argentina. It's it's almost about to go extinct again because it's a low-yielding variety. And people are trying to replace it with higher yielding varieties. And then my dad comes and says, wait a second, let's see if we can do something interesting with Malbec. And actually, partly it was because my grandfather, my Italian grandfather, my nono, the one who used to call me the little mouse, he loved Malbec. And he said, Malbec is as good as the best wines of Bordeaux. And so my father basically says, let's see if we can do something interesting with Malbec. And then we come out with Malbec and... It wasn't instantly successful. You know, it took a a couple of years of just trying to sell one bottle at a time 
And then we start making inroads. And then there's the famous, there's an article that comes out in 1999 in the Wall Street Journal. I can send you the reference where it's the first major article in a major newspaper about Malbec, where it says, look at this variety. And actually, Cadena Malbec is the number one Malbec. And really, it's after that article that things start changing. And then, you know, like, then you've got the early 2000s with more Malbec coming all over the world. But really, it's this fascinating history. And I tell people that I think it is the most interesting history of any variety in the world. Do you guys know a variety with a more interesting history, Robert and Peter? It's definitely quite unique. <laughs> I mean, I think there's a lot of parallels to the the Tanat going to Uruguay and things like that as well. But I think that it's the fact that it's fallen out of favor in France and and you guys probably in the the clippings that are in Argentina are quite old, right? And so I think it's and, and the diversity there is is quite interesting. A side of the story that I think if you actually go back, I've heard if you go back and look at what the clippings that they have in France are not as biodiverse as as what oh, you. Oh yeah, no. Yeah. I mean, we have like hundreds of different cuttings of Malbec which have been lost because only the Cote, the Cote is a kind of Malbec that's highly productive and higher yielding. That was what was kept in Europe, and so we have in Argentina the more qualitative plants, lower yielding high quality, much, much better quality uh, Malbec genetic selections in Argentina than what's left in Europe and what's available to the rest of the world. So you mentioned that 1999 article where Malbec takes the global stage of the wine world and, and you're, obviously your father is in the forefront of leading that charge. But I am curious, prior to that, what, in terms of the plantings, like was it already was Malbec already widely planted and really proliferated across Argentina? And then it was just how to get that accreditation before people kind of... I'm just wondering, is like prior to that, was Cabernet more, more significant in plantings? And, and with that recognition, did the plantings then shift substantially in Argentina? So in terms of how important was Malbec? So in the 1850s, all these varieties come to Argentina. There's this Mr. Michel-Aimé Pouget, who is this French viticulturalist who's hired by the Argentine government to establish this nursery. And he brings Cabernet, Malbec, Chardonnay, Petit Verdot, Semillon. He brings some Italian varieties. He brings Sangiovese. And all of this gets planted. And nobody really knows because it's not written anywhere. Why does Malbec get so much more widely planted? Now, my theory is that, first of all, Malbec at that time was the number one grape in Bordeaux. And Argentina was trying to make a quality wine industry. So the idea was, how can we make the best wines? Oh, we've got to plant this Malbec grape that makes the highest quality wines in France. They also planted a lot of Cabernet, but more Malbec. And also a lot of the vineyards were mixed with Malbec, Petit Verdot, and a little Semillon, which is how some of the vineyards were planted in, in Bordeaux. Now, my theory is that Malbec just did better than everything else. So if you plant Cabernet Sauvignon in some places where the soils are too poor, and you know we have these alluvial soils that are sometimes just pure rock, Cabernet does not do as well as Malbec. Malbec can thrive in the rockiest of soils because it has these really deep root systems. If you were to plant Pinot Noir in that soil without grafting it, it's going to die the second year. But Malbec just survives. And it also survives in the clay soils. And it also survives in the sandy soils. So I think that Malbec is just so well adapted to this intense sunlight and to the different soils that it just did better. And that's why the viticulturalists tended to plant it more. And I actually had this Italian guy, Don Angel Paolucci, who came from Italy to Argentina when he was like 10 years old. And I was once standing in his vineyard 
And I said, you know, Don Balucci, why didn't you plant some of your Italian varieties when you came here? And he said, Senora Laura, listen, I tried to plant my Montepulciano. And then he, he looks up and he goes, where is my Montepulciano? And he asks his daughter, who's now the viticulturist there, like, Chiara, I don't remember her name. Where's my Montepulciano? And he's looking around. He's like, you see, they pulled it out without even telling me. You know why, Senora Laura? Because the only thing that does well in this region is Malbec. And I think that what happened is that people planted other things and they just didn't make as beautiful a wine as Malbec. And that's how Malbec got so widely planted. But then there was this era in the 1970s and 80s when Argentina had a thousand percent inflation, economic disaster, political disaster, where people were looking for high yields. And Malbec is a naturally low yielding variety. You cannot get high yields from Malbec. There is nothing you can do. And I actually think this was part of the problem also in, in France that after Phylloxera, they wanted a little stronger varieties. Cabernet Sauvignon is higher yielding than Malbec. And if there's just a little bit of cold, Malbec yields are down like 40 to 50%, and Cabernet is down only like 10%. We've had that happen, for example, in 1917 is a good example, in 1916. So I think that Malbec might have really like been gone were it not for my dad really kind of having this last minute thought of let's try Malbec. And I think that in a way, it was also a lucky moment. I think maybe the world was ready for the variety. But the, you know, my main answer to why Malbec actually has to do with the taste of Malbec. So when people ask me like, oh, is, is Malbec a fashion? And I ask them, you know, is dark chocolate a fashion? Of course not. Like, what would we do without dark chocolate? And I think it's just got this beautiful fruit forwardness, beautiful texture, and the smooth tannins. So it's a big wine with smooth tannins. And, and the other amazing thing about Argentine Malbec is that depending on the region, it gives a completely different flavor. So, you know, we have these single parcel wines from Adriana, and actually even within the same vineyard, we have like a, a more tannic and rich wine. And then we have a more sort of Pinot Noir style wine. If you plant it in Salta, it's much more jammy. Salta is to the north of Argentina and like syrupy. And, you know, some people don't like that, but a lot of people love that, you know, a little more alcohol. And then you go to Patagonia and you've got like super spicy, like almost a little herbal. So to me, it's just this amazing variety with the potential of taste of place, very similar to Pinot Noir in some ways. You know, they're both varieties that have, you know, if they're grown in the right place, nice acidity nice fruit profile that changes according to place, but always smooth tannins. So I think that the reason why it became so important in Argentina and why it's really responsible for the rebirth of Argentine wine internationally has to do with it being amazing in itself. And that is a lucky stroke. Whoever put it on that boat coming to Argentina in 1852, that was a stroke of luck. So what are some of the key breakthroughs that happened in Argentina to make Malbec so popular and so well-received in the winemaking or in the viticulture that has really kind of transcended it and actually allowed it to flourish and become quite so popular and then also explore so many parts of Argentina? Well, I think that the first thing was when my father came out with this Malbec, uh, there was like very, very little Malbec being exported. And I think there was a lot of interest uh, in it, like this article in the Wall Street Journal, and then other people paid attention. And I think that it was that kind of initial success that led people to say, okay, we're not, we're going to stop pulling it out. After a while, people started planting it because there was interest. 
But then your question about the winemaking, I think, is really important. So when we started making Malbec in the early 90s, there were all these flying winemakers coming to Argentina. There was Michel Roland. There was, you know, our friend Jacques Lourton. There was, like, everybody was coming from everywhere. Paul Hobbs uh, from California. And initially, these people were basically saying, you need to make Malbec the same way you make Cabernet Sauvignon. So it was like the long maceration, which is not good for Malbec, because Malbec, you know, you really have to make Malbec more like Pinot Noir. And what I realized was when one time somebody told us, okay, so you need to open the vineyard to the light. So remove the leaves. And we said, no, 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 you cannot do that here because it's high altitude and they're going to get burned. And they said, no, do it anyhow. And then, of course, the grapes got burned and the wine was disgusting. So I think what we realized, and this is why I founded the Catena Institute in 1995, was that we had two things, high altitude and Malbec, which the rest of the world knew nothing about because the French had already forgotten about it. And high altitude, there's a few other high altitude regions in the world, but no important high altitude region. And they're not similar to ours. So we needed to do our own research. And what we did find was that Malbec needed to be made differently, that uh, you could blend different altitudes to make some really interesting wines. Like we have a wine, a wine called Catena Malbec. I call it our classic Malbec. That is like our Chanel number no. five. You know, it's the first Malbec that so many people drink. It's in all the master of wine, master sommelier exams. And it's a great wine. It's an altitude blend. But then we need to understand how do you make some of these cool climate high altitude wines And those have to be made more Pinot Noir style because you're really preserving the fruit. And you can do all the punch downs you want. You're never going to get harsh tannins. If you did that to Cabernet, you'd have a wine that was undrinkable. If you do it to Malbec, like to Pinot Noir, you just get more texture. And then if you're dealing with a more ripe Malbec, then you do want to think maybe of a longer maceration and and go more for the Cabernet style of uh, winemaking. And in the early days for my father, Actually, winemaking technology was completely lacking in Argentina. So we used to make wine in these gigantic oak barrels that were used over and over for 40 years. So the the wines would get oxidized and you wouldn't preserve the taste of play. So actually, at the same time as we had this um, viticultural revolution that started with my father when he decided to plant at 5,000 feet elevation where nobody had ever planted vineyards, where people thought the grapes would not ripen, but they did because of the sunlight. There was also a technological revolution. And that's where actually these flying winemakers, you know, and I would include Paul Hobbs, who was our consultant, were really important because to make Chardonnay, like the Chardonnays, like white stones and white bones, which I know you guys have tasted them, beautiful, mineral, elegant, you cannot allow these wines to get oxidized, right? And, and that's where I think a lot of this technology, like the temperature control, how to use oak barrels without allowing the wine to oxidize, how to use presses so that you're really gentle on the grapes, I think that's where a lot of these fine winemakers were really helpful. So you've dialed in the winemaking, figured out the locations for the viticulture. And you mentioned in your intro, you're like, I wanted to come back and help my father, but also help my country. How does Argentina then go about building a brand around Malbec for a grape, in your own words, has been forgotten by the rest of the world? Like that, that seems like a daunting challenge. Like how, and obviously the Catena, but I guess Catena Spada have been the leaders in that area. I'm curious, and like, how do you attack that problem? Well, you know, there's, it's like a benefit and, and a responsibility when you're sort of the leader from a country and people look at us to see what we do. But I take that very seriously in that if I do the wrong thing, other people might too. And I hope this doesn't sound arrogant, but for me, it's just a big resp- responsibility when we make a move. And I tell you, there was a very dangerous moment about 10 years ago 
when I started getting a lot of questions from journalists, from sommeliers, and the question was, what's the next thing for Argentina? Malbec is going to go down the way of yellowtail Shiraz. And they were almost saying it as a given. And every interview from a journalist was, what's next for Argentina? And at first I started answering with, oh, we have this beautiful grape Bonarda that's like French-Italian and it makes this beautiful wine. And then we have these beautiful Chardonnay and we make great Cabernet and there's a Cabernet Malbec blend. And, you know, we have the Torrontes and Salta and we can make great wine from many varieties if they're planted in the right place. There was one call I had with, it was actually a French journalist living in Quebec who like really kept on insisting about this thing that Malbec was going to like go down. It was almost like somebody telling me, your child is going to become a delinquent. And it made me really mad. And often when I get really mad, good things happen. Sometimes bad things happen, but most of the best things that I've done have been because I get a little mad. And I said, you know what? I said, this is ridiculous. Why are people asking me this? This variety tastes great. It's a, it makes wonderful wines. It makes wines of place. They're different in every every part of the world, in every place in Argentina where they're grown. This grape has been around for so long. Why are they asking me this question? And I actually asked myself, would anybody ask Aubert de Vilaine from Romane Conti, what happens after Pinot Noir? Like you wouldn't, would, would either of you guys ask him that question? No, Maybe right? for climate change now. <laughs> no, actually, you're right. For climate change, you might. And the answer would be, well, we're going to plant it somewhere else. But the point being that I realized that that was a ridiculous question, but that I had to answer it, not with what are the other varieties, but why that is the wrong question. And so I said, in order to answer that, I have to understand Malbec even better. So that's when I started doing all this historical research. And I realized that, you know, Malbec had this insanely great history. And, you know, I reached the conclusion that, of course, it's here to stay because it can make a great wine. But then I also realized that we Argentines were not doing a good enough job at communicating that complex history. And at communicating the fact that Malbec could taste like a specific soil and place. And that's where I, I looked at Burgundy and I said, wow, these guys are doing an amazing job at communicating a taste of place. And we started making the Adriana Vinos de Parcera that we've had a couple of hundred point wines from there, the parcel wines of Adriana. We make the Chardonnays and the Malbecs. And then other Argentine producers started making wines from specific soils and vineyards. And I think that we've moved the needle. In terms of the history, and this is where my sister, who has a PhD in history from Oxford, she's a Berkeley grad. Wait, Peter, you're a Berkeley grad, right? Yep. Yeah. So my sister went to undergrad at Berkeley, and then she went to Oxford, and she has a PhD in history. And so I went to her, and I said, Adriana, she's my little sister. I said, I need you to help me prepare like the best PowerPoint ever on Argentine Malbec. And I'm telling her all this history, and she says, oh, God, that sounds so boring doing a PowerPoint, why don't you just make a label and tell that whole story? And I thought, oh my God, like she's never sold a bottle of wine in her life and she's having like the best idea ever. Yes, of course we should do this. So we actually came up with a label, it's called Malbec Argentino, that tells the history of Malbec through four women. And it starts with the honor of Aquitaine, then it's the Italian immigrant. Then actually Phylloxera, the insect, is, is one of the women because Phylloxera, the insect, mostly exists in the female form. And that's why they couldn't exterminate it because they couldn't stop the reproductive cycle. And then my sister is the fourth woman and we had a big fight about it. She wanted to be me, I want to be her. And then I won because I'm the older sister and she just gave up. But anyhow, we made this label and I think this label's made a big impact because we have a website for the label. 
And now when I go to taste things, I used to ask people like, when did Malbec first make a wine? And most people would answer like 1950 or something like really recent because they hadn't heard of Malbec before. Now people actually say, oh, it dates back to the Roman times and Eleanor of Aquitaine. And they actually tell back our story, which is kind of an amazing thing that this would happen. But I think that also the other Argentine producers have started telling the story. And, and actually, we're coming out with a book, my third book about Malbec with our winemaker, Alejandro Gil, that actually tells the history of Malbec, but also it talks about the taste of place and all the different soils. And, and it's pretty cool. Oh, so taking us back, though, to when Malbec was just burgeoning on the global scene, I think you said it was like the late 90s, right? Early 2000s. Were there things that the industry did to really make that happen? How much was price and like value core to having that lift, initial liftoff? Yeah. Well, I think that my father's strategy was very clever. So he actually started with a Chardonnay and a Cabernet. So the first two Catena wines for export were a Chardonnay and a Cabernet, Catena, Chardonnay, and Cabernet. And this was with the 1990 and 1991 vintage. And the first Catena Malbec was with the 1994. So he kind of put his foot down with Cabernet and Chardonnay. And we just did hundreds of blind tastings. And actually, my mother was very important here. My mother actually runs a software company in Argentina. But my dad, who is sort of a, a nerd, you know, he's like, my dad could live in a library. Like if you put a little cot on a library and you said you're going to live here for the rest of your life, he would be so happy. And the idea of going out there like the Antinoris and, you know, Angelo Gaia, who were really good friends with these guys. But my dad said to me, as he said, I can't do what Angelo Gaia does. I mean, you guys have seen him. I mean, he's like a showman. And my dad's quite intellectual. And so he had this brilliant idea. And I wasn't working with him then, but he's told me as years have gone by, why not my wife? And my mom is the opposite. Like she is more chatty than Angelo Gaia. Like if you can imagine that possible. And she will stand up in the middle of a crowd and talk to people. And basically my mom went store to store. And the way she tells the story is she would say, here's my Cadena Chardonnay retails for $20. And people would be like, ha, 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 ha. You think, you know, this is in the early 90s. You think I'm going to pay, somebody's going to pay $20 for an Argentinian Chardonnay. We've never even heard that Argentina makes wine. And, you know, that was the price of a really high-priced California Chardonnay. So my mom would say, here's my credit card. What's your best wine? She would buy the wine. She would carry a little bag with paper bags and then she would blind taste them. And she claims that our wine always won. I don't know if that's true. I do have confirmation from one person that says that it is true. A customer that's still a customer. He said, no, no, your mom's telling the truth. The Catena Chardonnay won. And we literally sold one bottle at a time. And I think that that established the Catena reputation. And then when we came with Malbec, we were already known for quality. So I think that strategy was good of my father's. And then we have the Nicolás Catena Zapata, which is this wine that, Peter, you and I have talked a lot about this wine. It's a Cabernet Malbec blend. It was the first sort of collectible Argentine wine that, you know, we did blind tastings with Opus One, Camus, you know, Latour, like all over the world. People like Jancis Robinson, Oz Clark were at the tastings. And that was a very important wine for us. But again, that was a Cabernet Malbec blend. And then you know, Malbec took a while. I mean, I'd say it was 10 years. You know, it wasn't until like the early 2000s that, for example, our Malbec started getting like really high ratings from the journalists and a lot of attention. So it was basically opening a lot of bottles and proving to people the quality. And the current challenge for me is how do we 
get these special Malbecs to enter the collector world. And we're definitely going to talk a lot about that. But what were the key initial markets for Malbec outside of Argentina? Was it the U.S. and U.K. or did other markets help build this global brand? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that for us was always important, is still important, was the Argentine market. And we actually started with these really high-end wines in the Argentine market. And that was a huge success. And it also gave us the income to support the exports because exports are expensive. You have to travel, you have to meet importers, you have to, I mean, spend a lot of money when you don't exist. How do you go from nothing to existing? Whereas in Argentina, there was a consumer developing interest in high-end wines, a consumer that was traveling around the world, tasting great Italian, California, and French wines, and who was very excited to drink their own amazing Argentine wine. So at the same time as we were doing exports, we were working on the high-end wine consumer in Argentina. And Argentina is like Italy and Spain and France. Like you drink wine, you don't drink beer or, or spirits. I mean, some people do, but it's widely available. Wine is our beverage. It's actually the national beverage of Argentina. It's, it's got a, like a, it's been assigned national yeah. beverage of Argentina. Um, Would you consider that a key difference with some of the other South American countries like Chile? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I, in Argentina, we have our own domestic market. Everybody that makes wine and sells wine, drank wine. And wine is not a business in Argentina. Wine is, is this sort of passion family thing. And it's really first a passion than a business. Every Argentine wants to make the best wine in the world. And I think that that, that kind of crazy ambition was good for Argentina because you know, it's a lot easier to sell a bunch of cheap wine and make it that way. But it's a lot harder to wait 20 years until your brand is recognized. And you can only do it that when you do it out of love. It's kind of like the artist that starves for 40 years and then, you know, like they finally become famous. But it was worth it, right? Because you were doing something that you love for all those years. So yeah, I think that that is a differentiator for Argentina. Usually for the artists, it's after they're dead. But that that too, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm glad that's not for us because I couldn't keep on making great wine. Yeah. So how did you and your father think about building the brand of Argentine Malbec versus building the Catena brand? Well, at first we started building the Catena brand because. Argentina meant nothing to people. So we needed to become a brand that meant something. And it's funny because there was a great customer actually in Mill Valley who used to tell me that people bought Catena Chardonnay by the cases and they all thought they were buying California wine. We're talking about the 90s because they didn't know Argentine wine existed. So really, we developed Catena as, as standing for quality early on. But as Argentina became better known, you know, I'm convinced that what is that expression about the raises all ships, the boat that uh, rising tide? Rising tide. Yes, the rising tide. I am convinced of that. And not only am I convinced that it helps us, but I want to help my region. I want to help Argentina. And I definitely think that you need to rise a region as a whole. And so we, for example, at the Institute, share all our info. We've actually shared our Masal selections. Like we have the Catena cuttings that we share with other wineries and vine nurseries because we want the quality of Malbec in Argentina to increase. All our research we do into vineyard pests and climate, we share, we publish everything. So everything is available. And to me, they just come together. We actually have two kind of guiding principles. One of them is what I said before, 
making Argentine wines that stand with the best of the world. And then for the Catena Institute, where we do our research, the vision is to elevate Argentine wine for another 100 years. So Catena has been making wine since 1902. We're now almost 120 years. How do we do another 100 years? And in order for that to happen, we need to help our whole region. And that's really part of everything we do. Like, you know, and when I wrote my book, you know, I don't know, you guys have seen my book, Vino Argentino. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so. That one on I, my bookshelf? I wanted somebody else to write this book because I actually hadn't written a book before. I had some people write some things and I was like, I don't like their style. Plus, they don't really know the story. And I wanted it to be in English. I wanted there to be a book in English about Argentina. And so I decided to write it just because I probably knew more about this than other people. And I went first to and talked to um, a writer in Argentina. And I said, yeah, I'm going to write this book about all the regions, about, about 100 producers. I'm going to pick people that I think are making great wine. He's like, you can't write a book about your competition. And, you know, I'm a medical doctor. I, don't, I never went to business school. I, that's not my language. And I said, why not? I'm going to write about all the people I think make great wine. And he said, nobody's going to want to be in your book. And I was like, oh, really? That, that sounds terrible. So I said, okay, let, I'm going to call a few people around. I called them and they're like, oh yeah, we want to be in your book. I mean, I even had people chasing after me at Expo, like, Laura, is it too late to be in your book? And I was like, you know what? I told you the deadline was a month ago and you didn't submit your thing. Yeah, it's too late, but you should have, you know, submitted on time. And, you know, in the back of the book, there's all these wineries. Everybody wanted to be interviewed. We took the most amazing pictures of all the producers. And, you know, we're really close with the other producers. That doesn't mean that I want I mean, I want to beat them at making the best wine. They want to beat me. That's how it should be. But that doesn't mean that we can't all try to elevate each other. And actually, we brought sustainability to Argentina in terms of a code. There wasn't a code for Argentine sustainability. Chile had one. South Africa had one. California had one. And I said, this is scandalous. We don't have a code for Argentina. And I kept on asking around and nobody was working on it. So I said, let's work on it. We actually brought all these codes, the code from all these other parts of the world. We studied them. We adapted them to Argentina. We presented them to Bodegas Argentina, which is this national organization. And now hundreds of wineries are using this code. And it was amazing. And everybody's so happy that we did this. And I don't know, not only is it the right thing to do, but it's actually more fun to make wine this way when you really think of your whole region. So, I mean, the model of the Catena Institute of Wine, is, that sounds really unique. I can't think of, I mean, a lot of times there's like regional bodies that do something like this. I'm trying to think of another one that pops to my head. Universities. That, yeah, universities. Like, But to be founded by a winemaking family seems quite unique. And I was just wondering, like, did you guys model that off of something? Or is it just, you just thought it was the right thing to do for the proliferation of the... No, we, we didn't model after anything because we didn't know of anything like it. We basically had a problem to solve. The problem to solve was elevating Argentine wine. I knew that we needed know-how from outside of Argentina, but we also understood that we had to do our own research because soil, the soil in France is completely different than the soil in Argentina. So a French expert's not going to really be able to help me with my soil. They might have some guiding principles, but they don't know Malbec. They don't know ungrafted vines. 90% of the vines in Argentina are ungrafted. It's a completely different animal than grafted vines. So I realized that we needed to do this research in order to elevate Argentine wine. I also decided early on that we wanted to publish because that's, a, that's a, a big thing. A lot of wineries do research, but they don't publish it. And there were two reasons I wanted to publish. First of all, I wanted to make sure that we did the right research. And so knowing that you're going to have to submit it, it's going to have to be peer reviewed. You don't get tempted to take shortcuts. And then the other thing was that I wanted to share it. And what I didn't realize would be important about that 
was that because we publish, other institutions want to do research with us. So right now, we are doing with Benjamin Bois from University of Burgundy, their study on Pinot Noir. They're doing Pinot Noir around the world, the chemical fingerprint. Like the study we did for Malbec, they're doing it for Pinot Noir. And they had to choose a site in South America. And they could have chosen Chile, which has a lot of Pinot Noir, or Argentina. And why did they choose us? Because they've looked at the kind of research we do and they trust that we're going to do a good job. And so what I didn't expect, and which has happened, is that a lot of great outside universities and institutions want to do research with us because we have this institute. And that brings all this know-how to us that potentially we wouldn't have access to otherwise. So at the high level, you seem like you're covering all the bases to like build, you have the science aspect in terms of the Canadian Institute of Wine, you've got the storytelling in Vino Argentino and Gold in the Vineyards. I'm curious on what has been the greatest impact in actually building up the brand of Argentine Malbec? Well, I think it's a lot of baby steps. And this is, I have this battle with my dad all the time because he's like, what do all those people in the office do? And I'm like, you know what? They send hundreds of emails so that we can get one answer. It's very labor intensive to do this work because you have to be able to handle that. You do a lot of stuff that never leads to anything. But I do have one guiding principle. And I figured this out on my own, which is I don't try to tell too many stories at the same time. So I have seen other wineries or other brands that they're always changing their message. You know, one day they tell one story, the next day, you know, first they want to talk about altitude. The next day they're talking about soil. The next day, they, and I think who can keep track of all that stuff? There's too many wineries out there. So what I usually do is every year I'll have a main concept that I'm talking about. And let's say we're doing a wine event. We're doing that same event all over the world. And usually it stays on for about two or three years. So for example, when we launched Malbec Argentino, this label with the, um, with the four women, we actually created a play, a theater play, and we hired this actress in UK because my brother-in-law actually wrote the play. He's a theater director, and he could train her there. And we traveled all over the world doing this play about this label, and we really just focused on that. Right now, we're doing this incredible tasting that I am in love with, which is called Let's Talk About Grand Cruise and Grand Vin. And we basically do, it's not a competition, it's basically a discussion where we do parcela wines like the White Stones, White Bones, Fortuna Terra, one of the Malbecs, side with a Pinot Noir, and it's mostly to talk about elegance. And then we do either a Bordeaux blend or a California Cabernet with the Nicolas Catena Zapata. And we have people have a discussion about what the grand, the term Grand Cru means and what does it mean about the taste of place and you know, are there only Grand Cru's in Europe? And like, really, when you start having the discussion, and, and actually Larry Stone, who is a super famous sommelier who knows everything about France, but who also makes one in Oregon, is a great partner for me, and we do it together. And it's a really interesting discussion, because I think there's a lot of people who still think that there is only Grand Cru sites in France. And actually, if you're a wine producer, you know that there's special places in many parts of the world, but usually, even out of a big vineyard, there's only about two to three hectares that are amazing. And the same thing that happens in France, in Burgundy, and Champagne, and Bordeaux happens in other parts of the world. And I'm in love with this tasting. We've actually already done it in Japan, in Hong Kong, in London, in Canada. We're doing it in the US. We've done it because of COVID by Zoom. But, but again, I usually like to have one thing that I'm really focusing on every year. And then a lot of it is relationships with journalists, and one thing about the tastings is they've got to be fun. Like 
I always try to create something that's like entertainment. You know, the play. The play is crazy. Like people say, what? It's a play about wine? And the play is so beautifully written and it's so much fun to watch. It's a 20-minute play. And that's the other thing. Like, you know, I think there's so many boring wine tastings that I train. I work really hard to train my team to ask questions. Please don't lecture. So those are a few of my thoughts on this. Was that tied in with your book, Gold in the Vineyards? Well, Gold in the Vineyards really tells the story of what I believe, which is that there are these extraordinary sites in many parts of the world, not just in France. But my book has four French wineries and only one from Argentina, one from Australia. So I have myself a bit of a Francophile. So, and I think I have two from Italy, one from California. But yeah, the idea with Golden the Vineyards was to talk about these special sites. But also what I wanted to do with the book was to show these concepts through illustration. And again, this goes into that I think so much that's written about wine can be boring. And to me, if you, if you showed this by illustration, people would enjoy it more. Plus, who reads a wine book for fun, like one of these boring wine books? Like maybe you're studying for the MS, but I wanted there to be a wine book that basically you're sitting there having a glass of wine and you're like, oh, we're drinking a wine from Italy. Let's look at Lauda's chapter on Antinori. And there'll be the little drawing about how he plants his vineyards and Sangiovese and the history of Sangiovese. And so, yeah, that book goes a little with that same concept. I do want to ask a question on this. One of the main studies that you've done at the Attendant Institute of Wine is on terroir. And I I feel like a lot of people really, when they talk about terroir, they're often just talking about soils. But in your study, you've actually gone and talked about not just the soils and not just the grapes, but actually the fingerprint in the wine. I was curious on why you took it to that step because I feel like that is the last mile that a lot of people haven't taken their studies in and in what value have you gained in terms of building up the Argentine Malbec brand? Yeah, absolutely. So kind of like that journey that I did in studying the history of Malbec to show that it was this variety that had persisted through time because of its greatness. I felt that I had to somehow prove that we had this thing called terroir and we had these Grand Cru sites in Argentina, in Mendoza. And that's one thing that I had to prove them. The second thing is that I feel that in order to preserve the taste of place, you need to understand why it happens and what it's made of. Like, what is the chemistry behind the taste of that place? And so in order to know that, we need to do the research. So the first study that we did was in 2010 when Fernando Usema was at UC Davis. He actually did a study of Malbec, different sites in Argentina and different sites in California. And we found that They were very different, but we also had different plant selections. This study was 24 sites in Mendoza, and we did the study over three years. And actually half the wines had a fingerprint that was reliable, that basically you could give them a bottle of wine, they could test it, and they could tell you it's from this place. And the fingerprint consisted of, there was like 10, I was actually just looking up on my phone, it's like 10 different anthocyanins. And I think it was like 20 small molecular weight polyphenols. And the level, how much of each one of these is basically put into a statistical program and spits out, it comes from this place. And to me, that's important because it's proof of terroir, but it was proof that some terroirs were more reliable than others. So only half of the places gave 100% reliability. The others, the vintage changed things too much so that they were less reproducible. And I think that when you start talking about Grand Cru, what is a Grand Cru? It's a site that has a reproducible flavor that even with vintage variability has some distinctive feature that's age-worthy, that's 
somehow extraordinary, that has something that maybe stands out. And that's what another outcome of the study was really interesting, that not every site had that reliability and that taste of place. And I think that's what you see all over the place. And a similar study to this has been done in in Burgundy, for example, but it only looked at four sites and not over three years. So this actually is the largest ever study of its sort ever done. There's a few studies ongoing for Pinot Noir and Syrah around the world of a similar nature. And so in terms of the, I get the fingerprint that there's a unique signature for those sites. Is In the study, did it talk about perceptibility of that from the wines in the, that a taster could detect? Or is that something that is, I'm, I'm just curious on the next step. No, no, in no, terms I love that. Absolutely. So that was actually the juice tested. Then you've got volatile compounds. That is ongoing. We haven't finished that yet. And then we've got sensory analysis. This is all part of Roy Urbieta, our wine director at the Institute's PhD thesis. That is like, there's like 20 PhD thesis in his PhD thesis. But sensory analysis was actually a technique developed by Professor Hyman at UC Davis and Roy trained with her. And you basically train a group of people for several months to distinguish certain like spicy, red fruits, medicinal fruit, herbal. And then you get these people together and you rank the wines. In Fernando's study in 2010, where they did sensor analysis, they were able to distinguish location by sensor analysis. And that is happening right now for this study you mentioned with the 24 different parcels. But we haven't finished that yet. So coming back a little to Argentine Malbec, the market for it, trying to elevate that Argentine Malbec today is, I think, considered a classic wine. It's on the exams, as you said. It's one of the main wines of the world, but it's still not necessarily known as a core fine wine or investable, collectible wine yet. I know one of your aims is to change that. What are the strategies you're employing to try to make that happen? Well, I think it's something that you need to be patient about because I've seen a lot of people trying to do really flashy things, like do a ton of advertising and That's just not my thing. And I think that fine wine is something that people want to discover. They want to fall in love with it. They don't want to be told, this is one of the great wines in the world. Go ahead and collect it. So I think that you have to do a lot of tastings like this talk, this tasting, the um, let's talk about Grand Cruz and Grand Val. That's a tasting where I lay out the wines and they get to decide. Do you think that this Argentine wine is at the level of a Grand Cru from Burgundy or a great wine from California? from Napa or a great wine from Bordeaux. So I think you need to provide those kind of opportunities. I think Eduardo Chadwick has done a really good job. You know, he does that Berlin tasting and it's a lot of work and and a lot of money spent. You know, you know, I have to go buy all these expensive wines, but you have to do it. There's no way out of it. I think ratings are important here. And I know that a lot of people say they don't care about ratings and they hate ratings. And, and I do agree that Giving a number to something as beautiful as a wine, which to me is a piece of art, it has something about it that I don't love. On the other hand, I think that the progress we've seen for the new world would not have happened without these ratings because how many people would would you have had to taste the wines with to change minds? Whereas one journalist that has an experienced palate and a following can change many minds. So I'm actually very grateful for all these journalists who've taken the time, you know, Parker, uh, with all the, the different people he's had, they come to Argentina. Luis Gutierrez comes to Argentina every year. James Suckling comes to Argentina every year. Many magazines send people to Argentina. They, they meet with us. They talk to us. They, they're interested. And, and I think I'm very grateful for that. And I think that tourism to your own country is very important. And I think that's where we are at a bit of a disadvantage from, let's say, Italy, Spain, California. 
And we're trying to change that. We're actually opening a new hospitality center in the front of the winery. And um, I want to turn it into the best wine experience in the world. (laughs) And we're going to teach sustainability. We're going to actually do poetry and wine where people get to write poetry. It's going to be so amazing that I'm hoping that just like people go to Can Roca in Spain, which it's hard to get to it. You know, you have to fly and get on a train, the number one restaurant in the world. Uh, I'm hoping that people will come to Argentina just to come do the the wine tasting experience. Yeah, Christian Wiley from Bodegas Garzón, Bodegas Garzón mentioned that tourism is a huge aspect of bringing people there and, and feeling the kind of overall experience. I agree. I agree. I think our main problem is that we we get booked like six months in advance and then we get all these TripAdvisor hate notes saying that people couldn't get an appointment. And I feel like you don't get to give us one star if, <laughs> if you didn't make it. So I, it's a double-edged sword, the tourism. That, that's the one thing, you know. Today, with, with all these tools, people can really send you nasty messages, but you kind of have to, you know, believe you're doing the right thing and stick with it. So, Laura, with every guest, we always ask them to do a wrap-up and make a couple predictions. So we ask for a lasting trend and a fizzling fad. And I was wondering, what do you think a lasting trend is for Argentine Malbec? So I think uh, wines of parcela, of specific locations, are definitely a lasting trend. Yes. And what? And in terms of fizzling fad, something that you thought was maybe potentially a perception, what do you think is a fizzling fad for Argentine Malbec? And that can be anything from a perception to things that are actually happening in Argentina. I think that you still hear people saying, oh, all Argentine Malbec is super oaky and alcoholic. And you know what? There haven't been wines like that for 10 years. There was kind of a trend in the early 2000s, but now most of the fine wine making has moved to cooler climate areas in Luco Valley. So the, you can't even make those wines anymore. And in, in cool climate, you can't get high alcohols. So I think that you are still going to see from some of the warmer areas, these sort of more table wines that are a little alcoholic and oaky, which some people really like. But I think at the high end, it's going to be like very refined. And it's what you're seeing today for most producers. And, um, you know, and that's here to stay and really wines of place. Awesome. Well, thank you for your time. We uh, greatly appreciate it. All right. Thank you, guys. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.